With more than 500 programs a year, there's never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Matt Shoup. I'm the principal at Praetorian Public Relations and chair of the Contra Costa County Republican Party here in Northern California. From 2017 to 2018, I served as the communication director and chief spokesman for the Republican nominee for governor of California, John Cox. Also in 2017, I was named 40 under 40 in the, in the country by the American Association of Political Consultants. And last year was named in the top five political communications professionals in California. And I'll be moderating today's program. We'd like to thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all of our other programs possible. We are grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Huckabee Sanders, former White House press secretary under President Trump and author of the new book, Speaking for Myself, Faith, Freedom, and the Fight for Our Lives Inside the Trump White House. One of the most visible members of the Trump administration, Sarah was at the president's side for two and a half years, battling with the media, working with lawmakers and CEOs, and accompanying the president on every international trip, including dozens of meetings with foreign leaders. As a trusted confidant of the president, she advised him on everything from press and communication strategy to personnel and policy. And speaking for myself, she takes it behind the scenes and offers her unique perspective on what it was like working alongside the president inside the White House. She discusses her faith, the challenges of being a working mother at the highest level of American politics, her relationship with the press, and her, and her unique role in the historic fight raging for the future of America. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to make sure that I ask your questions too. If you're watching this along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I'm very excited to join you, Matt. And uh, hopefully we'll have a little bit of fun while we learn a little bit and have a great discussion. So I'm excited to be here. And thank you again for, for hosting and moderating. Absolutely. And for full disclosure, we did not coordinate the red on the outfits at all, just Republicans in San Francisco. Um, yeah, so this is going to be fun. So it's actually a shame we can't do this in person, but I, you know, totally understandable. And, and it's always fun to have people out in San Francisco. We've had some of your colleagues, I know like Sean Spicer was out here and things like that in the past. So, you know, I, I kind of want to start, let's just dive into it. Um, so reading your book, you know, you talked a lot about the talks with Kim Jong-un, your trips to China and North Korea. You know, obviously the China stuff is, is every day in the media now. Um, and with Kim Jong-un, that was a major breakthrough. And, you know, you had the president recently uh, nominated for a, a peace prize. So what was it like? What, what is Kim Jong-un like in person? What were those talks like? You know, what is the president like in those, in those situations? What were your experiences? You know, one of the things that I found so impressive about President Trump is his ability uh, to weave in things of interest in those conversations, as well as 
pushing his own specific agenda. Um, whether we were in a meeting with Kim Jong-un, he managed to talk about things that were of interest to Kim Jong-un that he would want to talk about, whether it was uh, his favorite basketball team and other sports. He's a big sports enthusiast, as is the president. Um, he loves to watch NBA basketball here in the United States. And so the president was able to talk about some of those things while at the same time, you can have that lighthearted conversation, but be able to focus on what was really the ultimate goal. And that was to talk about denuclearization. Anybody that can work in basketball and denuclearization into the same lunch uh, is a pretty skilled uh conversationalist and President Trump did such a great job of developing relationships, um, whether they were people that we didn't always get along with or developing a very close bond like he did with Prime Minister Abe of Japan. They found things they agreed on and they were able to build on that as a great foundation. However, despite the fact he developed those relationships, he never backed down from what he wanted and what his ultimate goals were, whether it was in his negotiations uh, with China. He wasn't going to except just a good deal. He wanted a great deal and pushed aggressively. Uh, it's one of the reasons that he was able to get that first phase one with China, while at the same time maintaining a very strong position uh, with China on a number of other fronts. USMCA, I think, is a perfect example of the president's ability to negotiate and work with other world leaders and get a really good and historic deal for the United States. Um, I watched those negotiations take place, and I was always impressed by the president's ability to develop a relationship while at the same time not back down from what he wanted and what he thought was best for the United States. So I think in, in your book, you mentioned that uh, Kim Jong-un's sister attended at least some of the meetings you were in. And, and obviously, since those meetings, she's become much more prominent in American media with all the rumors going around about Kim Jong-un being in a coma and she might take over. To the extent that you can talk about it, you know, what was your impression of her? Um, she's very stoic, and um, I can't get into a lot of details about um, specifics, but uh, she definitely seems like a very uh, tough and close ally of her brother. Um, if she does at some point take power, it'll be very interesting to see how she transitions. He seems, um, you know, maybe more willing to have those conversations. I don't know if she would be. Um, but again, I can't get into a lot of details and it would be remain to be seen exactly how she would um, act if she ever took over that position. She wasn't as talkative. And so, um, you know, a very different personality, I think, than her brother in some, some ways. Great. Um, so the, the piece that was just done between uh, UAE and Israel, how long was that in the making for? I know you're not there now, but, you know, can you talk a little bit about that and the process to get there? Essentially, the day that the president took office, this was something he really wanted to focus on was uh, making significant progress on Middle East peace while maintaining very close relationships with our allies, including um, one of our strongest in Israel. Jared Kushner, I think, has done a phenomenal job of helping navigate very difficult waters um, in the Middle East peace process. And it was significant um, to get this first deal, um, but also um, the flight that took place was another big achievement in the last month and more progress on that front. But it wasn't a certainly overnight deal. This is something that they've been working diligently on essentially since day one of the president taking office. Yeah, that, I mean, I guess that seems like a little bit of a contrast of how the North Korea situation was described, where that seemed to happen very quickly and was a very fluid situation. So 
So it's good to know that they were, you know, there's some long-term goals going on there. On that note, what do you think one of the biggest misconceptions of the president is? You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is because I wanted people to see the president that I got to see every day for two and a half years. Um, he's a very fun person to be around, a person who loves this country and is dedicated to making sure he does everything he can to make it better. Um, he's not perfect, but he does love America and he's willing to fight for what makes America great, even if that means he has to fight alone. I, I've been fortunate enough to attend a couple of the uh, off the record fundraisers with him, and he's great in person. He's he's very enjoyable. He's I, I can I can definitely get that sense from him. He's one of the most um, fun people that I've ever been around. He has a, a huge personality. He's a great storyteller, and he's a very engaging individual. Um, and he has a very good sense of humor. One I don't think the media appreciates very often, and they want to take everything he says literally, but never take him seriously. And I think that that is a mistake that they make at their own peril because if they would sit back and just lighten up a little bit i think they would really enjoy the president a lot more and they would also learn a lot more about uh what he wants to do and what he's all about absolutely so it's always fun to talk about the president but you know the focus today should be on you so let's get to do um so you know one of the things that kind of stood out to me in your book was talking about being a mother and doing this you know one of the most demanding jobs in the country and I have a lot of admiration from others that are able to do basically anything beyond being a mother in addition to being a mother. And so what advice would you have? I, I know there was a story here in California like a week or so ago of a, a assemblywoman that had her like newborn child that she had to go into session with late at night. And that created a lot of headlines out here. So why don't you, I mean, you know, I was, when I was reading your book also, I saw there was one line you were talking about how you left the office at 6 p.m. And I was like, oh, I'm so jealous. I wish I could leave the office at 6 p.m. But then you, you know, went home, you know, had dinner and everything, but then you were up till 12. So why don't you talk about that, that work-life balance and what that was like? You know, it can be extremely challenging uh, to work in the White House in any capacity, but to do so with three young kids at home is extremely demanding. You know, being the White House press secretary is an all-consuming 24-7, 365-day-a-year job, and that meant a lot of time and sacrifice away from my family. It was one of the reasons I ultimately made the decision to leave the White House is because there are a lot of people that can be a White House press secretary. I'm the only person that can be mom to my three kids. And I missed some of those moments and I didn't want to miss any more after that and wanted to move my family back home to Arkansas. But one of the things that was so important for me and one of the reasons that I took that job in the first place is because I do want my kids to understand how important it is for people to stand up for what they believe in and to serve and do all that they can to help move those principles forward. And I wanted them to know the sacrifices we were making. So I tried to engage my kids as much as possible and take them with me to work events when I could. My kids are very young. They're now eight, six, and five. At the time when we first went in, they were one and a half, three and five. And so taking kids those ages to the White House um, presented a lot of challenges to say the least. So I didn't take all three of them at one time because I thought that would be just impossible 
impossible to actually get any work done and manage all three kids. So I would rotate and take one at a time so that they could see um, their mom be involved at that level and understand why we were doing what we were doing. Some days that worked out really well. Other days trying to mix uh, work and kids didn't turn out as well as I had hoped. I write about several of those moments in the book. One in particular, that's one of my favorites. Um, I had been doing some work on a Saturday morning and set my phone down and went to do something with my daughter, Scarlett. And in that time, my, at the time, four-year-old Huck came over, picked up my phone, and managed to put a tweet out full of emojis from my official White House account. Uh, That tweet went to thousands and thousands of reporters, all wondering what I was trying to say. If you've ever looked at your emoji selection lately, there are a lot of possibilities. And I'm thankful that my four-year-old son focused on trains, planes, and stoplights, because it could have been much, much worse. Um, I saw the the emails come in and the text messages, Sarah, what are you trying to tell us? And um, I quickly started to panic, thinking, I'm not trying to tell you anything, and finally realized Huck had managed to put that tweet out. And just as I was ready to get very upset with him, I realized it was infrastructure week and his emojis were all perfectly on message. So I let it go as a communications professional, Matt. I know you can appreciate that. But Yeah, I was going to say, I know the president has a big priority of infrastructure. I would have just alluded to something ominous like that. So that was, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that would have given me like heart palpitations. So appreciate, appreciate that. Um, you know, when, when, and on that topic, you know, you pointed out, I think you were the first mother that served as press secretary. You know, Kellyanne Conway was the first, you know, female to successfully run a, you know, a presidential campaign that won. What can we do to get more women involved in politics, especially at the highest levels? Well, I think so many um, women are starting to take on that dual role. I think one of the things uh, for me that I have learned through this process is women need to do a better job of supporting each other. One of the things I found kind of disheartening and even troubling on sometimes the people that came after me the hardest and attacked me the most and came up to me in public most frequently were other women. And I would sometimes just be really taken aback by the fact that here we are um, in the world of women's empowerment. And it was other women that were liberal women that were constantly putting me down instead of building me up. That doesn't mean they have to agree with everything I'm doing. That doesn't mean they have to agree uh, with you know, the principles I'm pushing and they might not like my politics, but you would think that we could have an appreciation for one another. And I think women need to take a real hard look at how we can better support one another. One of the difficulties is that I think social media can be a great tool, but it can also be a very destructive tool. We spend so much time seeing the highlight reels of everybody's life, the perfect vacation, perfect family photo, perfect lunches and birthday parties. And we put so much pressure on ourselves to measure up to everybody's highlight reel because you're not looking at the kid melting down in the grocery store or, you know, the family photo or nobody's looking at the camera. You see a lot less of that. And I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be perfect. And we have to remember none of us are perfect, but getting out there and trying and really focusing on trying to get the job done and supporting one another, I think could go a long way for women across the country. Absolutely. And I mean, to your point about the expectation of perfection, I think as press secretary to the president, 
you know, you're under more scrutiny than almost anybody else in the country. A few of the examples you outlined in your book was the pie gate, you know, and you were also saying how, you know, your, the press room was almost as hectic as your house. And you had that one reporter was like, well, I want to come to your house and see what it's like. I mean, you know, how, I mean, what have, I, mean I guess then what advice do you have for people? I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are on social media that, you know, get, you know, they go, they have a viral moment, like here, you know, in, in San Francisco, you had that hair salon owner that, you know, put out the Nancy Pelosi video, and she went from a essentially an unemployed hair salon stylist to, you know, a national, you know, spotlight. What, what advice do you have for people um, that are held to that expectation of perfection and put out there? And how did you deal with it? Well, I, I think when everybody is honest, we know that there is no perfect person. I'm a person of deep faith, and I know that we are all very flawed. Um, and that's the whole idea of Christianity is that we can't measure up. And so for me personally, the most important thing for me wasn't looking for validation or definition from the New York Times or the Washington Post, but I already knew who I was and what I believed in before I ever stepped foot in that room. And I think if more people uh, can be more solid in their convictions, they will have an easier time once they get out there in that public eye. But it, I, I think one of the uh, key takeaways, treat other people the way you want to be treated. I tried, even when people were mean and nasty and hateful to me, uh, to respond with kindness and respect. Sometimes that's a little easier said than done when people are asking you to leave a restaurant or other things. Um, but I think if we can kind of just go back to the basics, teach our kids those things, I try to make sure and instill that in my own kids every single day is regardless of how somebody treats you, we treat people with respect and kindness. We need to do a lot more of that, I think, in our homes. And again, go back to know who you are, know what you believe in, and don't be afraid uh, to, you know, state your own opinions and be very public about what you believe in. You know, I, I remember reading a story in your book about the uh, incident at the restaurant, and I, and I was thinking about it, you know, in hindsight, that almost seemed like a flashpoint in a way of everything that's kind of happened since then, where you've had such an escalation of political confrontation, political violence, you know, with everything that's going on across the country right now. You know, even here in the Bay Area, you've got mobs that are going to mayor's houses and trashing houses. happened here in Walnut Creek. It's happened in San Jose. It's happening in Los Angeles. And these are, you know, liberal mayors. And so, I mean, what do you think now? That you, I mean, you live that. What is that like to, to have that type of political you know, confrontation to you to live in that fear that, you know, people could show up your house at midnight? And what do you think we can do to de-escalate that? Well, I can be the first to tell you, it's certainly not fun to go through that process. Um, I'm the first White House press secretary in the history of our country to ever require Secret Service protection. Um, that was not a fun time. It was very difficult, um, less for me, but more as a parent and knowing that I didn't feel like I was able to really fully protect my kids. And that's a scary thing. And I know that there are a lot of people that are living in big cities right now in particular that are dealing with that. I think that's one of the reasons that we have to talk about law and order. I think it's certainly peace, people have the absolute right and should peacefully protest. But the key to that is peacefully protest. We can't allow riots and violence and looting to go on in our cities. We have to have law and order. We have to maintain um, some sense of 
community within each of our cities and the chaos that is going on across the country is something that I think we we have to get a better handle on. It's one of the reasons I think that the president is smart to talk about this as we go into November. It's one of the reasons I think we've seen Joe Biden do a 180 and start talking about it. Um, I just don't know if he has a lot of credibility on the topic because he has been so um, quiet over the last couple of months as this has escalated to the place it is. Um, I think it is really devastating what is happening in a lot of these communities and some of the people that are getting hurt the most, the businesses and the communities being hurt the most are minority communities. And instead of forming mobs out in front of these businesses, I think we need to find a way to encourage people to form lines in front of these businesses and support them by their products instead of burning their buildings down. One of the things that I did in my own home state here in Arkansas, my husband and I started a nonprofit called the Arkansas 30 Day Fund. And what we did, we wrote the very first check and we ran out and raised private donations uh, to help small businesses across our state, people that had between three and 30 employees that were based here in Arkansas and had been in operation for a year. And we gave them forgivable loans, money with no strings attached. And this was a way for us to bring people from all over the state to support our community, to support our small businesses and let them know that they had people that cared about them and wanted to see them succeed. I think we need to focus on a lot more things like that, focus a lot more on what unites us instead of what divides us. And we're going to be in a much better place, but we cannot allow um, the destruction of these cities to continue. You know, I, I know that I, I here in the Bay Area, I run into a lot of misconceptions about the president and that he is not now that we're kind of back on that for a second you know, that he is anti-LGBT and that he's a racist and all these terribly inaccurate things. Um, I, I want you to sort of talk about that a little bit and, and give some a, a diversity of opinion on that and, and show why it's wrong. I know, like, he appointed Rick Grinnell, the, uh, you know, National Security Advisor, first openly, you know, LGBT member of the cabinet. So what do you what do you say to those those critics out here, especially? Well, I, I think Rick has said it better, certainly, than I ever could. And I would encourage anybody that questions the president, um, his feelings toward that community to go and look at some of the testimonials from people like Rick. I think the president took a very bold step in putting Rick in such a high and prominent position. And I think that spoke volumes to where the president is um, on that matter. I watched him uh, support across, not just in the United States, but globally doing things and protecting um, people in the LGBT community and particularly putting pressure on countries who persecute that community as well as the Christian community and saying, not on our watch, not when we have the ability to step in and protect these individuals. But again, I would encourage people to go and watch uh, Rick Grinnell's testimonial video. I, I, I could never say it as well as he did and as articulately as he did on his uh, relationship with the president and how the president supported him both as ambassador to Germany as well as um, on in the president's cabinet. 
And I know on you know the issue of race prior to COVID, I think the you know highest you know black employment levels, and, and there was a lot of progress being made there as well. If you want to elaborate on that for a minute, absolutely. I think you know if you want to compare President Trump's record in four years to Joe Biden's over the last forty years, Donald Trump has done more for the black community in America in those four years than Joe Biden has in forty. Not only did he fight to make sure all Americans do better in a Trump economy, you had the lowest unemployment rates for African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, and Asian-Americans. You also saw historic funding for HBCUs that the president pushed through and made sure it wasn't just a one-time deal, but made it permanent. He created opportunity zones to provide resources and funding uh, for minority communities uh, that has, I think, generational impact that we will see play out well after the president is gone. Um, He instituted and fought for and pushed through legislation for criminal justice reform that had uh, disproportionately affected and impacted minority communities. This is a president who wants all Americans to succeed. And I think if you look at the policies that he has pushed through and spoken up for um, in his four years, you'll see that he's delivered on a lot of those uh, big initiatives that he set out to do when he ran in 2016. Let's get back to being a press secretary. So what, what do you feel like some of the misconceptions about it are and what are some things that you wish more people knew about it? It's a very unique job. You know, a lot of people think that the press secretary's only job is to stand up at the podium for a half hour to an hour every day and take questions from the press. What a lot of them miss is that um, hundreds, if not thousands of reporters all across the country, frankly, all across the world, have your cell phone number, your email and access to your office. So all day, every day, I fielded questions from reporters and provided them with information. It wasn't just in the press brief. It wasn't just in interviews. You are constantly in contact with members of the press and providing them information and communicating the president's message to them. Uh, So I think that's one of the big things that a lot of people don't realize is how much access the press really has to the White House and to the press secretary specifically. You also uh, spend um, a lot of time working directly with the president and his team, um, where some offices um, may not intersect with everybody. The press office literally intersects with every uh, area of government, every area of the White House. And so you are a part of pretty much everything that takes place in the White House and in the administration. And you get um, to develop relationships with every different agency and really get to see history unfold in a way that very few people do. What is one piece of advice that you wish someone gave you when you started that job? Well, there's probably a lot of advice I could have used. Um, You know, probably the best advice I was given, not just for that job, um, but in life is something that my parents taught me early on and reminded me of and instilled in me day after day growing up. And that's to always be yourself. Don't try to be anything other than who you are. And I tried to do that, whether I was behind closed doors at the podium, I never wanted to be somebody different than who God created me to be. And, um, you know, I tried to bring a little humor, a little personality into the briefing room occasionally. The press didn't always appreciate my humor. 
humor, but uh, sometimes the people at home who were watching enjoyed it a little more than those in the room. But that was probably um, not just the best advice for that job, but just generally is to always be yourself. So I work in California and I deal with the press corps here in California. I think outside of the, the press White House, you know, uh, press pool, they're probably the most adversarial press group to Republicans in the country. Um, you know, what advice do you have for other Republicans, you know, dealing with, you know, the media, adversarial media? I think, you know, you have more than anybody else in the country has had adversarial media, but at the same time, you know, as you pointed out in the, in the book, the president also recognizes the tremendous amount of power they have. And you need to have, you know, especially in this job, you need to have a positive relationship, or at least, a, you know, a constructive one. So how did you balance that? And what advice do you have for maintaining and working through that? Well, I mean, one thing that I think you can do um, is be a, a nice person. Um, I, I tried to have good relationships with members of the press. Sometimes there were some of those individuals that made it very difficult. Um, but I, but I always tried to treat them, um, with kindness. Um, again, there were moments that were very difficult to do that when you're under attack and feeling just a, a barrage of negativity day in and day out. But one of the things I, I think that individuals, um, that they can do. Don't ignore the press, but you do have the ability to go around them and take your message directly to the people. You don't have to live through the filtered lens of the liberal media. Uh, through social media and other channels, you can get your message out. And I encourage people, again, don't ignore the press. I think they have a role to play. There's an accountability piece in their existence. And I think they're important for our democracy. But if they continue to move so far to the left, and not uh, report accurately and fair information, then I think you have the ability to work around them and take your message unfiltered directly to the people and let them make a decision on uh, how they feel about a particular issue after they get that information. So I have, I have a few questions about some personal interactions you had with some people. This will be fun. So tell us about the first time you actually met the president. What was that like? First time I met the president, I was actually working against him uh, because my dad was also running for president in 2016. And I got to know the president and some of his team during the debates and some of the big cattle call events where all of the candidates would show up uh, to speak. And you're waiting backstage. And I had some interaction with the president uh, during that time and with his staff. So that was my first time to really meet the president was early in 2015, shortly after he announced for president. And um, after my dad got out of the race, uh, about a week to 10 days after that, I quickly joined President Trump's campaign and, uh, you know, developed a much better relationship with him after that. You made it a point in your book to tell the story that uh, Scaramucci made the point to say that you, he made you laugh on his way out. So what was it? What was it like working with the Mooch? Uh, he's a colorful character, to say the very least. And um, it was a very intense uh, 10 days that we had together. He came in, um, you know, hard charging and with a couple of missions in mind. He wanted to clear out a few people, of which he did. And, um, you know, I think his colorful language got him into quite a bit of trouble. And, you know, he ultimately didn't last very long at the White House. Uh, General Kelly fired him shortly after um, he went uh, on the record with a reporter and um, didn't realize, I guess, that he was being recorded and said some not so nice things about other people in the building. Um, 
you know, he, he was a character and on his way out the door, he kind of looked back and said, have you ever laughed harder than you did in the last 11 days? And I kind of thought about it and I was like, I, I don't know, maybe not. No. And he goes, good. Then my job here is done. And, you know, from there he walked out the door never to uh, come back to the white house again. So, um, you know, a lot happened in that short amount of time, uh, under the era of the mooch. Um, another little, uh, interaction that stood out to me is, uh, you gave a, you were help writing a, a press statement for general Mattis and he commented that you were really tough. Uh, what, you know, what is that like having a, you know, Marine Corps general tell you that, you know, of which, you know, General Mattis. That you're- I'll, I'll be honest. It makes you feel pretty, pretty good, pretty confident um, for somebody who is leading the Department of Defense and around some of the toughest people probably in the world, uh, the men and women of our armed forces. And for him to recognize and actually say to me that I was tough was pretty reaffirming and a nice validation. and good confidence builder to go into that briefing room the next time. So you have a unique life experience that you you grew up in a political family. Your your dad was a governor. And then, you know, I think at 24, you ran his first presidential campaign. So, I mean, what age did you identify that you wanted to work in politics and, and why? What was the draw? You know, one of the things I love about politics is that you get to interact with so many different types of people. Um, Before my dad was in politics, uh, he did uh, worked in the church. And we used to kind of joke in our family that church and politics are alike because we take everybody. And you get to meet so many different types of people. And I think you get to see the best and the worst uh, of, of your community. But certainly, I think the best really comes out when you're in those difficult moments, when my dad was making difficult decisions. Um, he was governor for were almost 11 years and getting to grow up in that environment and see the things that he was doing and the policies that he was pushing. Um, one in particular is a uh, children's health care program called Our Kids First. And one of the more memorable uh, moments in terms of kind of a, a political government moment early on that had a, a big impact on me. I was traveling with my dad at a campaign event and he had spoken at a big banquet dinner and we slipped out through the kitchen. As we were walking out of the kitchen, a a uh, young woman grabbed my dad's arm and um, said, Governor, can I talk to you for just a second? And she had a, a look on her face that at first I thought that she might yell at my dad. And instead, um, when I looked a little closer, I realized she had tears in her eyes and she told my dad the story. She was a single mom with two kids and one of her kids had a very difficult illness. And without his children's healthcare program, she didn't think her kid would have received the healthcare needed to survive. And literally with tears in her eyes, thanked my dad for saving her son's life. In that moment, you get to see the real world impact of the work that you're doing. And that left a huge impression on me uh, to always want to be helpful and to want to serve in moments that I can. Um, Most kids spent their summers going to summer camp and the pool. 
I spent my summers uh, hitting the Arkansas festival circuit, passing out pamphlets and asking people to support my dad. And I got to do that with him. And I loved every minute of it. And I, I you know, never looked back since. You know, one thing I've always found surprising is when I tell people what I do, they seem to have like no con or little concept of what PR professionals do. Why don't you take us behind the scenes? What is it like to murder board the president? What is it like to prep for these big interviews? What is it like interacting with the, you know, Good Morning America and, you know, Sean Hannity's show and all these major networks? Like, take us behind the scenes. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that you try to do is remember they're regular people just like you, um, and you block out all the distractions and focus on the questions that they're going to ask and the message that you want to deliver. Uh, I think preparation for me in particular when it came to the briefing was important, but it wasn't just those murder boards for me, one of the things I loved about the president is even though he was fighting with the press, he understood the power of the press. And he knew that it would be impossible for me to do my job and speak on his behalf if I didn't know where he was and what he was thinking on a particular issue. So he took me with him. I was in the room for those big moments. So I wasn't learning them third hand. I was getting that information firsthand. I was watching the process unfold from the very beginning until the very end. And I think that's imperative for any communications professional. It's impossible for you to really uh, tell a message and explain something to other people if you yourself don't understand it. The other part of that is you really need to believe it. Um, I've been fortunate to work with a number of uh, both governors, senators, and worked on a number of presidential campaigns. And if you don't really believe in the candidate or the elected official, it's very hard to tell their message in a convincing way. And so I would encourage anybody that wants to work in communications, whether it's politics or corporate or any other type, you need to believe in the product you're selling, whether it's a person or an actual product, or no one's going to buy it. If you can't effectively and clearly communicate your own belief in it, it's going to be hard for somebody else to really buy into it. You know, one thing that really stood out to me was coming out of the 2012 election, you know, there was a lot of stigma or rhetoric, and it was mostly true that the Republican Party struggled with messaging and media relations and technology and, and digital and social media and everything. I know with the growth and opportunity report that came out of the RNC, they, they did do a lot and made up a lot of ground. I think that's really represented in, in the efforts now. You know, one thing I point out to people is that... Um, the Democrats have never done such a thing. They've never done any sort of internal autopsy, at least they've made public, trying to talk about, uh, you know, their inabilities and their 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 struggles. Um, where do you think that the Republican Party can still improve moving forward? And where do you think some of the biggest vulnerabilities in the Democratic Party are? Well, I think one of the things that Republicans can do a better job of um, is being more inclusive. And by saying that, I don't mean changing our principles or changing our party platform, but I do think that we can do a better job communicating what we believe to different demographics. For far too long, we've allowed Democrats to put people in a box that if you um, are a woman, you should think like this. If you live in this community, you should think like this. And Republicans need to go in those communities and take their message directly to those different individuals 
individuals um, because as a woman, I, I certainly, my platform lines up much more with the Republican Party than Democrats. But if you listen to Democrats, they'll tell you that if you're a woman and you really care about uh, women's issues, then you have to be a Democrat. We heard Joe Biden say not too long ago, um, you know, you're not black if you're not voting for him. And for too long, we have allowed Democrats to put groups in boxes and say, if you are this or think like this, then you have to vote this way. And we really need to take our message to a, a broader variety of demographics um, and really expand our party without changing our principles. You know, you don't seem as the uh, divisive people that most people, or you don't seem like the divisive person that people like to paint you as. What advice would you give on trying to sort of, like I was mentioning earlier, that to de-escalate kind of our society right now, where, again, I think you, you haven't seen this type of political violence and political agitation in, in a lifetime. How, how do you recommend we, we walk back from this? You know, I think there's a, a couple ways. One of the most important is look for things that you agree with people on. Uh, too often, the first thing we do um, and the first thing, certainly in politics, people look at what they disagree on instead of what they agree on. I think if we would focus a lot more on what unites us than what divides us, we would all be much better off. No matter how liberal somebody is, I would imagine I can find something um, that we would agree on. We may have to start really small, like, yes, it's raining today, or no, the sun is out today, but build from that, start a foundation so that we can have real conversations and look for how to have real reform. I don't have uh, a lot of optimism that that takes place prior to the election. I think right now things are so divided and so intense as we lead up to November that I don't know that that will change, but I'm very hopeful that after we get through this election, um, we can look for more ways that we can work together, look for more ways to move the country forward and start talking about more of the things that we agree on and less of the things we disagree on. Great. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between different topics. Here. I want to go back to the, the press secretary job. So going back to the adversarial press room, how do you prepare yourself to go in front of dozens or 100 plus journalists and, and be prepared on a, a wide breadth of topics and, and be able to stay on message and deal with, you know, dozens of cameras looking at you, knowing that this message is going to be reaching the whole country. Like, what do you do yourself to get ready for that and to maintain throughout? Yeah. And one of the things that we talked about before, um, it's a gradual process. You can't learn everything the hour before you walk out for a briefing. And so a lot of it um, is building on the foundation of being in the room and watching things happen as they unfold, spending time with the stakeholders that are part of that process, um, you know, and learning from experts. If I knew that the news of the day was very heavy on the economy or on trade, I would try to make sure that I had a conversation, obviously not only with the president, but with Ambassador Lighthizer or Larry Kudlow or Steven Mnuchin that were the leads on those issues before I went out and tried to answer questions. The process for me, uh, I learned best by practice. And so what I would do prior to a briefing was a murder board session where my team and my staff would uh, pretend to be reporters and throw the toughest questions they could think of. 
everything is on the table so you can never be prepared for every question sometimes you have to trust your gut instinct and hope uh, you don't create a war with another country or crash the economy by saying the wrong thing um, which is why it's so important to have a good foundation and a good relationship with the person that you're speaking on behalf of I just spend a lot of time with the president to really understand what he wanted and what he was trying to accomplish and how he was trying to accomplish it so I could effectively communicate on his behalf. On that note, you know, you mentioned your phone would start going off at five o'clock in the morning with, you know, show producers. You're sitting in meetings all the, you know, all day long. You're having these murder board sessions. You're working until, until midnight. How did you manage your own schedule? How did you stay sane in that situation? Well, um, managing my own schedule was not always easy. I had a great team that I got to work with. And I think it's always important to surround yourself with very good people, very talented people. Um, I had an amazing group in the press office that I knew if I couldn't deal with something and they could, I didn't have to worry about it because I knew it was in very capable hands. Um, and that helped tremendously and took some of the pressure off. Um, the other thing was to focus on what you could do instead of focusing on the things that you weren't going to be able to get to. Focus on what you could control and really prioritize um, the things that were most important and the places you had to respond to first and kind of work your way down. I think something that surprises a lot of people is kind of the age of a lot of political staffers, you know, communications directors, both in Congress or even the White House. You know, a lot of them are in their 20s or early 30s. What advice would you have for, you know, a new college graduate or someone in college or someone in high school that wants to go into politics and maybe work in the White House comm shop or go work for a congressman? What what advice do you have? Well, I think part of the reason people are so young is because the older you get, the less energy you have, and it's much harder to keep up. It's one of the things that amazes me about the president. He's twice my age, but has twice my energy. I don't know uh, how he does it or where the endurance comes from, but he has um, just a tremendous ability to just keep going and going. For, for young people, I think the best thing you can do is if you want to work in politics and you want to work in government, look for people. People, um, that you really believe in and go volunteer on their campaign. Get involved early and be willing to do anything. Um, one of the things that I learned um, early on and one of the lessons my parents taught me is never ask someone to do something you're not willing to do yourself. A campaign is usually a small group of individuals that work 20 hours a day. And if you're the campaign manager, you may still be taking out the trash and stuffing envelopes. So you have to be willing uh, to roll your sleeves up and take on a variety of different tasks. So any young person that really wants to get involved and really wants to develop uh, in politics or in government, I recommend they find a candidate they really believe in and go out and volunteer on their campaigns, help them get elected, because those are usually the first places that they hire from once elected for their government offices or people that worked on their campaign. So let's transition now to leaving the White House and going into the book. So one of the things that really stood out to me when the governor campaign end, ended was my phone went from going off constantly starting at five in the morning until midnight. And then afterwards, a few days afterwards, it was just silence and it was surreal. So what was it like transitioning out of that role and back to being a civilian? You know, at first, um, you don't realize how tired you are after two and a half years in the White House. You're running on pure adrenaline. Um, you're working 20-hour days, um, and you're in the center 
of the political universe and you're part of all of the action and all of a sudden it just stops overnight you go from being in that middle of everything uh to being on the outside in some ways um it was kind of nice to watch from the outside other times it was difficult because you're like oh what if we did this or what if they did that and you're like i want to you kind of want to be in the middle of everything um but i was very thankful that i had a great family to go home to and my kids keep me very busy. And um, so there wasn't a lot of rest at my house that I would have liked probably after leaving the White House with three young kids, but it gave me a chance to take a step back and really uh, spend a lot more time with my family, which I really enjoyed and was very glad uh, to be able to do and to have that break right after leaving the White House. But one of the things I miss the most are the people that I got the chance to work with. I loved uh, getting to work for the president and I loved working with my colleagues and they were some of the most talented, um, freedom loving Americans I've ever met. And I miss getting to work with that group of people every day. So going into the book, uh, what, what preparation did you do? Did you read other memoirs? And if so, of who? What was that process like? Uh, you know, I really wanted to write a book that I would enjoy reading. And I didn't want it to be a um, not knocking anyone's book, but I didn't want it to be just another political policy book or, um, you know, just a, another political memoir. I really wanted it to be my story, a unique story. I hoped that people would enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. I wanted them to laugh and cry and hopefully be inspired throughout the process. So I tried to include a lot of personal stories and give real candid accounts, not just of my time in the White House, but also growing up in a political family, uh, growing up here in Arkansas, and some of the challenges that I experienced. Um, I wrote an entire chapter about being a working mom, something that I think a lot of women in this country struggle with is finding that balance. And it was important for me to talk about my experience, uh, things that worked, things that didn't. Um, I also wanted to be vulnerable so people had a better idea of who I was, uh, how I got to the place I did, and why I believe in the things that I do. And so I talked about some things that were very personal to me. And I hope that people get to see a different side of me as well as a different side of the president than they'll ever hear or get from the mainstream media. I really liked the uh, introductory story. I won't, I won't give it away, but it, it did touch me. It got me. And I, I really, I did appreciate that a lot. Uh, let's talk about the future of media for a second. Um, you know, President Trump was kind of the first president to really use social media and use his own platform, go around the media and go directly to the voter. Um, in addition to that, you've got print journalism that's definitely been shrinking over the last decade. And there's definitely a lot of conversation going on on what the future of media is like. Uh, where do you see media going? And what do you think the role of the press secretary is going to be in 20 years? Oh, in 20 years. That's a, that's a hard one because media has evolved so much in just the last five years, much less in 20 years. I, I think it's certainly moving uh, to a much more digital age. One of the things that I do think is, is dangerous in the area of journalism is that we have started to blend what is news with what is opinion. It used to be such a clear line, very black and white. News was here, opinion was here. And now it's very hard to tell the difference of what is 
is news and what is media. You have people um, like Sean Hannity, who he's not a news guy. He's a commentator. He's very good at it. If you are somebody that is conservative and on the right, he's a great voice to go and listen to. At the same time, Rachel Maddow on the left, if you're more left of center, she's probably a voice you're going to want to listen to in terms of if you want to know what their opinion is. The problem is you don't know where to go get your news. And I think that's a big struggle for journalism is figuring out how to go back to making those two things very separate. One of the struggles with social media is that people live in an echo chamber. If you are a conservative, you're going to follow other people that probably share your values. And so you're going to continue to get information from those sources versus on the left, they're going to do the same. And people are just regurgitating things they already think and already believe. And we're not getting those challenging opinions uh, from one another. I think we need to find better ways to do that. And I think social media is going to continue to play a huge, huge role in media. I think things are moving much more to that direction than away from it. And we need to figure out how best to put real news in the hands of people on social media and not just opinions. So what do you think the role of social media should be? And also more importantly, in a a way, is the role of social media advertising. Uh, Earlier, you know, Twitter said that they're no longer doing uh, political advertising on their platform. I believe Facebook just announced that they were going to actually stop uh, political advertising a week before the election. I, I've, I've thought that it really actually hampers the challengers and non-incumbents, because if you're a, a new candidate, that's how the best way to get your message out and introduce people to you. But what do you think the role, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about social media, whether it's a utility or a publisher or some gray zone in the middle, and, and where do you see this going and, and what do you think the best thing for the American society is? I think social media certainly has a role to play. I'd like to see them uh, stop playing the censorship game, stop pretending like they get to be God and decide what people hear and see. Um, I think they need to serve as a platform and allow people to push out information and let individuals make up their own mind and who they follow and what they see. I don't think it is their role to determine what I get to see or what you get to see or anybody else for that matter. So I think it's a very dangerous road that they are traveling down and they need to be very careful um, that they don't get too deep into the censorship side. That's one of the things that makes America special and different is that we don't censor our media. We allow uh, people to have free speech. And I think they have to be very careful that they don't start limiting that. Particularly, I think a lot of the examples that we've seen over the last year or so are big tech censoring um, and filtering a lot more on the conservative side than the liberal side. And and I think that's, again, a very dangerous road for them to travel down. What do you think about situations like, uh, you you mentioned the instance of Yelp with the restaurant that you went to. And you know, I, I've seen this, you know, with uh, businesses out here with that hair salon in San Francisco. Uh, the owner of that salon was on Tucker Carlson last night talking about how, uh, you know, her Yelp page has just been destroyed and now she has to go out of business. What do you think of, I guess, online social media advocacy and, and you know, people ruining businesses over political disagreements? Do you think that Yelp has a, you know, a role to play in that? I think that's a really difficult position for them to be in. Obviously, they want to provide uh, a platform and that information for people to go if they've actually been to the restaurant uh, to be able to post a review. But I, I think we 
want to be careful about uh, using our political beliefs to determine whether a business should make or break. And I would love to see the liberal mob take a step back from trying to uh, attack everybody they don't agree with. Um, I certainly... Um, experienced that firsthand when I went to a restaurant and because I worked for the president and because of my political beliefs, my family and I were kicked out. I don't think we want to get to a place where we have Republican restaurants and Democrat restaurants or Republican salons and Democrat salons. Um, I think it's a very difficult place for social media companies like Yelp to be in. I think they have to try to figure out the way to best determine uh, whether people are, are verified users or not. Um, I'm not a tech expert in that department, um, but I do think that it's a, it's a difficult position and we need to be careful about putting so much emphasis on making uh, decisions based on political party. And we need to try to get away from that as best we can. So on a lighter note, what are some of the, the highlights, fond memories that you had of your time at the White House? I have hundreds. I wrote about a lot of them in my book, which I hope people uh, will read and see kind of that other side that I've talked about a little bit. Um, you know, one of my favorite moments in uh, my time in the administration. So we have an event where all of the, the kids of staff and others get to come and trick or treat at the White House. And my sons were fighting over who got to be what for Halloween, and they both ended up being Batman. And so I have this great picture of both of my sons dressed up like Batman and my daughter as a like kind of fairy princess. And um, they're in the Oval Office high-fiving the president in full Halloween costumes. And um, it was a really cool, lighthearted moment and um, one that I look forward to reminding them of how special that moment was for, for many years to come. But, you know, every day you get to step foot into that building and every day that I got to work at the White House, I considered it a privilege and a huge responsibility. And um, I took it seriously and I loved my job and I loved the work that I got to do. And I was very proud of what we did and what we accomplished. And so every day was full of a different type of memory, some fun, some difficult, um, but it was really a tremendous two and a half years. What about uh, a really challenging, you know, moment or day or press cycle? Um, again, I think I lived through those pretty much every day. Some of the most difficult certainly um, would have been around the White House Correspondence Dinner. I had been invited to sit on stage at the White House Correspondence Dinner. It's a huge event in Washington. There's buildup for several days, parties um, and events that lead up to the actual dinner itself. And it's kind of the who's who of Washington um, and New York media elites. Everybody comes in town. And I was asked to represent the administration and sit on stage that night um, when a comedian, I shouldn't even call her a comedian because comedians are funny and I don't think she's very funny. Um, and we have plenty of material to be funny. And she was just mean. And um, she on that stage, while I was an invited guest of that organization, standing just a foot or two away from me, um, attacked my appearance 
and um, a number of other, uh, I thought, aggressive and just mean attacks on other people in the administration. And that was a really hard moment to sit there. I didn't know whether I should walk out, whether I should throw my wine glass at her or, um, you know, sit there and, and take it. I decided ultimately to hold my head high and that it would say a lot more about her than it would about me to remain in that chair and again, hold my head up high and be proud of who I was and the work that I had done. But that was a a, a tough moment um, because there was so much happening. That was at the same time that I got kicked out of the restaurant and some of the other things that I write about in the book. So someone aggressively in public shamed you for your appearance. So I, I assume then that CNN and MSNBC and Democrat leadership in Congress all jumped out to your defense and condemned it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, In that one moment, I will say that there were a number of uh, journalists on the left that did speak out and say that that was inappropriate and had gone too far. Um, But that didn't stop them from, you know, weeks later, um, MSNBC uh, anchor saying that I was unfit to be a parent. I should be choked. Um, There were a lot of things. A member of Congress said that, you know, any member of the administration, people should get in their faces and let them know that they're not welcome anywhere, anytime for any reason. Um, So there was a lot of that. And, you know, battling back against that liberal mob had its difficult moments. But at the same time, I think we came out stronger because of it. And um, that's why I'm thankful that I had my faith and my family to get through those tough days. Did you ever push back? I mean, the, the hypocrisy and the, the Democrat leadership and the, and the liberal media, you know, calling for those things, saying those things about you, but then at the same time going out there and condemning the rhetoric of the president and condemning, you know, you've got all these people that, you know, all the, there's there's a lot of, sh- you know, against shaming of people for every lifestyle decision and, and whatnot in their lives. There hasn't really been a lot of aggressive, I feel, pushback on their hypocrisy, but that it's okay to go after you. Like, what do you... What do you feel about that? And and why hasn't there been more pushback, you think? Uh, You know, it's astonishing to me that there hasn't been more pushback. I I certainly tried. Um, I know the president has tried. And I think a lot of other people have uh, been very outspoken about the fact that the liberal mob is, um, you know, all in the name of tolerance coming after conservatives. They are all for supporting women as long as they're women that agree with them. One of the things I found so shocking was that the people that were the meanest and the harshest critics were other women. And um, again, I don't think they had to agree with me politically, but I think they could have been more supportive. I think we can do a better job of supporting one another. And um, I'm hopeful that more people will continue to stand up and push back. I thought the young kid, Nicholas Sandman, that spoke at the Republican convention um, and has sued and won a lawsuit against CNN um, was a very powerful testimony and it should be a lesson for all of us. Let's not be so quick to jump to conclusions. Let's not rush out to attack this kid. This was a 17-year-old high school student, and the media couldn't have been happier than to run the video of him standing there because they thought, because he was wearing that MAGA hat, they were so quick to tear him apart and tear him down. And he's a kid. Um, Imagine what they're willing to do to adults. Um, And I think the media has a big responsibility in bringing that temperature down and lowering um, the attacks that they're 
leveling on people, uh, particularly those that they don't agree with. So we have only a few minutes left. I have a couple of questions of point of personal interest, and I want to get to know you, you better as a person as well. Uh, in the book, you, you mentioned a few shows that you like, but outside of, they're, they're non-political shows, but I was going to ask you, what are your, some of your, your favorite political shows? Which ones do you think best represent the life at the White House and doing your job, and which ones do you think are just complete fiction and so far from reality? Well, I haven't found one that quite uh, really captures what it's really like to work in the White House. Um, but, you know, I used to be a West Wing fan back when it first came out um, and watched that series. Wow, it doesn't uh, quite feel like that. And it definitely doesn't look like it does on the TV show. Um, it's certainly an entertaining, I think, show. A little left of center, but um, still fairly well done and a, and a show I enjoyed watching. I, I need to probably go back and watch it now that I've actually worked in the West Wing and, and really dig into the differences on that. Uh, you pointed out in your book that you also have a, a taste for a good bourbon. So give me some bourbon recommendations. This will this will be the one that gets me in trouble. I'm sure that was not one of my parents' favorite parts of uh, of the book. Um, you know, it depends on on your taste. If you for just a basic uh, run of the mill bourbon, you can get anywhere. I think Woodford's or Makers are probably good ones. Um, but there's a lot of really um, great high end bourbons now, and these little. Uh, small distilleries and small batch distilleries that I think are really great. There's, um, uh, I think every little town now is starting to develop their own little bourbon. There's a place here in Arkansas that does a great job uh, that I like, but basic Woodford's uh, Maker's, if you can get a hold of it, a good bottle of Pappy is uh, always uh, appreciated, but it's a little bit harder to come by. Um, so what's next for you? I know that there were rumors circulating you might run for something. So, what do you, so after you're done with the book, what do you what do you see in your future? Right now, my focus is on 2020. I want to help the president get reelected. I like to help Republicans hold on to the Senate. And um, I would love for us to take back the House and never have to utter the word Speaker Pelosi again, um, which I don't know how popular will be there in your area, but I would like to help those uh, races here in 2020. And then I'll make a decision after that about what I'm going to do and whether or not I'll run for governor of Arkansas here in 2022. So last question, what's your one big idea to change the world? 60 seconds. <laughs> No pressure at all. I think one of the things that we have to do a much better job of in an area that we can improve that impacts every American is better and more quality education for every kid in the country. So um, that would certainly, I think, be a huge focus and needs to be a much bigger priority for anybody that's running for office. All right. I think that concludes it. Uh, our thanks to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, former White House press secretary under President Trump and author of the new book, Speaking for Myself, Faith, Freedom, and the Fight for Our Lives Inside the Trump White House for joining us today. Copies of Speaking for Myself are available everywhere books are sold, so make sure you grab one. We'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's effort in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Matt Shoup. Thank you and stay safe, everyone.